0: Our reading today is from Revelations 2, 12-17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people... There hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, not only to him who receives it. Are you rested this morning? So,
1: when I was teaching on a regular basis in the schools, I used to say to my students, you can come here for 45 or 50 minutes and and be present physically, but not engaged mentally, intellectually. Um, The same holds for church. I mean, you can come and you can sit, you know, especially if it gets a little warm, you know, and... You can just kind of be here. Or you can listen to the Word of God. And my hope this morning that you would do that. That you would intently focus, listen, and hear what God has to say to Camden as He said to Pergamum. And what He has to say to you. This morning we will continue. We've been looking at um, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. We've looked at Ephesus. We've looked at Smyrna. And we're going to look at Pergamum this morning. And Jesus Christ speaking in his glorified, miraculous, supernatural state, dictates to the Apostle John what he wants him to write down and then communicate, specifically to these churches. And to each church, he has something different to say. But with each church, what he's doing is this. He's interceding on their behalf, so that the light, their lampstands, the gospel of grace, which is supposed to go out and illuminate and restore and heal, doesn't go out. He's interceding and He's coming to them. And with each church, there's something for us to hear as well. To Pergamum. Pergamum, remember these are seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Pergamum had a great history as well. Not so fantastic as Smyrna, but during the, during the ruling of the, uh, of the Greek Empire, they were a city state, a powerful city state. Under the Romans, they actually became the capital of all of the Roman Asia province. And that meant several things. I mean, they had, a, they had a library in Pergamum of over 200,000 articles and publications, which is an amazing thing, right? But not only that, because they were the capital city, it was the place where people throughout all of Asia would come to engage in the worship of the emperor. Kind of sounds like Star Wars, right? The emperor. They would come and they would engage in cultic worship here in Pergamum. And so we see this incredible dialogue taking place, both commending and rebuking the church. And our Lord has a few things to say, all pertaining to truth. One, the truth of who He is. Two, the truth of who His people are supposed to be. And three, the truth of the power of our future hope that we have in Christ. The truth of who He is, His identity. The truth of who we are in Him as a people. And the truth of the hope that we have Offered through the gospel of grace. So let's take a look first at the truth of his name. Pergamum. Ultra-religious. So much so that um, Emperor Domitian at the time, he called it Neo-Granas. Which was the city of the most temples. In fact, at that time, and they've excavated this, there was a hill behind the city, about a thousand feet high, and it was cone-shaped. And it was literally covered with temples to all different gods. The god of Athena, the god of Zeus. But at the very center of it was the temple to the Roman emperor. It was the hub, the place to come and engage in the cultic worship of the Roman emperor at that time. And that's why Jesus says, look at verse 13. He says very clearly, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. And what he's saying is this My children in Pergamum, I know, I know the temptations, I know the fear. You live in a place that is wrought with spiritual conflict and darkness, so much so that I understand how hard it must be to be faithful in the midst of this wicked, wicked darkness. I mean, he's, when he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, what a hideous thought. Domitian as an emperor, was brutal. He was a tyrant. Some of the some of the historians say he's not so bright tyrant, which is not a good thing, right? He, he, he had this idea that he was going to bring back the greatness of Rome and he was going to initiate a renaissance in Rome, political, military, religious. The arts were going to come back. And so he set his his desires on making Rome great. And in his, in his mind, unlike many of his predecessors, he actually thought he was God. Many claim that title, but he thought he was God. And so every single person that addressed him had to address him as my Lord and my God. In fact, he took it so seriously that one of the stories goes that he was at the, um, the Colosseum enjoying a nice game of gladiating. And the gladiators were going at it and he had a particular team of gladiators. I guess it was the emperor's team that he liked a great deal. And there was a group of individuals who were booing the emperor's team. And so he had them pulled out of the stadium and executed on the spot. And they said, well, why would you do that? And his response is, to boo the emperor's team is to boo against God. He thought and lived out and acted and ruled as a God-man. He took it seriously. And therefore, everything in Pergamum centered around the worship of the emperor so for believers his the church they had as you have three choices right choice number 1 option number 1 living in the midst of a culture that worshiped a man other than Jesus Christ was you could you could just give up you could quit you know, And many of the Jews who had been saved, who, who were part of the Diaspora Jew after the fall of the temple in 70 AD that ended up in Pergamum, and here they are, you know, if it wasn't bad enough to be Jewish in the Roman Empire, now even worse to be Christian, hated even more. And some of them said, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm going to bag this whole thing. And if you approach Christianity as a consumer, if you come into it thinking, well, you know what, this is a great place to raise my kids. They'll get some, a real good moral foundation. Or, you know what? This is a great place to, to make some friends. Maybe find a husband or a wife or a little bit of community. Or this is a great place to send my children to school. Or maybe a great place to get rid of some of the guilt that keeps hanging on me. If you approach, approach Christianity like that, when persecution comes of any kind, you will leave. It may be someone, you know, gives you a look at church that you didn't like, so you'll leave. It may be that someone, you know, said something to you that was derogatory, so you leave. For them... The persecution was quite different. For them it meant, you know, possibly being dismembered or thrown to the lions or, you know, being used as a human torch at night to quit. Option number one. They had another option and that was to stand firm. The option was to not renounce Christ, to not renounce their faith, to say My op- God's opinion of me is infinitely more important than man's opinion of me and to stand firm in the midst of the persecution even in light of certain death. Option number two. Now, you know what's interesting? Both those options are really not the ones that we see today, and I don't think they saw in Pergamum, according to the rest of the letter. Option number three is to conform, to morph, to change a little bit. Maybe not a lot, but just enough to make sure that you don't lose your hide. Option number three, compromise. Compromising the truth. And it goes something like this. God, I'm a family man. Surely you need me to take care of my wife and my children. You don't want me to renounce the emperor in light of possibly being killed, right? I mean, Lord, Lord, you're an understanding and gracious God. What's a little bit of idolatry? What's a little bit of saying, you know, Kaiser Kyrgios, Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus Christ is Lord? What, a little bit. Not, not that bad, right? And so we compromise just enough to say that we're still in the faith but not be killed. Jesus Christ dealt with this in Mark chapter 8 very clearly with his disciples, whom he knew were going to be persecuted. Listen to what he said to them, and he says to us this morning. He said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of me before man, I will be ashamed of you before my Holy Father. And so this, this third option, this compromise option, it's not an all or nothing. It's just kind of a, uh, uh, well, I'll take the truths that I like, you know, and I'll hold on to those. But those ones that are uncomfortable, those ones that mean I've got to actually change the way I live and the way I think and the way I behave, I'll, I'll, I'll compromise on those. I will become... I will become a tolerant Christian. Because the church is full of intolerance. I will become a compassionate, tolerant Christian. And guess what? You just slid into the perfect cultural moment. Which looks at tolerance as the ultimate virtue. And intolerance as the ultimate sin. And it's somewhat ironic, isn't it? In our day and age. Christ is coming along. And he's saying to the church at Pergamum. As he's saying to us. The exact opposite. He's saying, don't you dare tolerate sin. Not in your life. And not in my church. Not for a moment, not the smallest bit of it. He calls them to a holy standard of living. And what's amazing is Christ reveals himself to the church at Pergamum. And I didn't do this before. In each of the letters, so in chapter 1, we get this grand supernatural vision of Christ glorified. And he's described by it. And then in each of the letters, a piece of that description is in that letter to that church. For example, to Ephesus. In Revelation 2.1, he said, These are the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who knows your heart. Remember, it was the lack of first love. He's saying, I know your heart. I know your lack of love for me. And then to Smyrna last week in Revelation 2.8, he said, These are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your fears in the midst of persecution. And then here to Pergamum, he reveals himself. Listen. So these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, you get that? what, What? That looks so weird in my mind. You know what he's saying? I am the truth. I don't just speak the truth. I don't teach the truth. I am the truth. Therefore, everything I say and everything I do reveals the truth. And he comes to Pergamum and he says, do you understand that? I am truth incarnate. I speak truth on how you are to live. Pergamum he comes with his mouth and with a double-edged sword with words of truth and then at the very beginning of this he commends them look at verse 13 he says to them you remain true in my name you did not renounce your faith in me and what he's saying is this you're brought before the emperor everybody was brought before the emperor and all the religions did it right so why not Christianity and they would say to the emperor Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord Caesar is God. And he said, but you, Pergamum, you stood firm. You would not say that. You would say, Kyrios, Lord, God, Jesus Christ. You would not forsake my name. In fact, it's so good. In the Greek, it literally means, you held to me my name. You personally held on to my name. And what he was saying to the church is, they were faithful to sacrifice their job or their reputation or their status. Or their family. To not forsake his name. They held it personally. Close to their chest. And they would not let anything come between them. And their identity in Christ. So radical was this. He even gives us. We miss it. Because we don't know the story of this man. But he gives us a case study. In the passage. Look at verse 13 again. How they were actually living out this faith. And their identity in Christ. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. By the way, in the Greek, that word is martus, where we get the word martyr. My faithful martyr, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas was very likely a nickname, because it literally means against everyone. But according to church history, Antipas... He, he went against Domitian and he refused to, to capitulate. He refused to compromise. And so the Roman proconsul uh, in Pergamum brought him before a magistrate and they said, worship the emperor. Show your allegiance to Kaiser Curios," And he said, no, my Lord, my God, Jesus Christ is the only one that I will worship. And so in the midst of this, so what do they do? what do you think they did? they took him they brought him to the public square they put him in this large human sized brass bowl and they put him in an open fire and they roasted him slowly before the entire community and Christ is saying I know the persecution I know how tempting it is for you to forsake my name in front of the emperor I know that but he said even in the days of Antipas you did not forsake me you did not give me up you held my name you held to it and so we get this fantastic commendation and they must have been incredibly encouraged just like Ephesus but you're waiting right you're getting the theme he says but don't get too excited because I do have something against you in verse 14 he says nevertheless I have a few things against you in the first revelation he's saying hold true to my name don't give up who I am don't give up me your Lord, your Savior, your God. But then he comes along and he says, what you have done is you've given up who you are in me. You've given up the truth of who I've called you to be. A holy people, a royal priesthood set apart for my glory. How so? When God is saying that this is, this is a letter of truth, he's saying on the one hand, I am true. I am the one, the Alpha and the Omega. And he's saying what I say is true. So you can't claim my name on the one hand, and then not live according to the truth that I proclaim. You see the problem. On the one hand, they were saying, yes, you are Lord, yes, you are God, but then the very things he was calling them to do and how he was calling them to live, they were not. They were living in contradiction to that. And what's fascinating, and all the commentators pointed this out, not only was Christ displeased, to say the least, with what they were doing, but he was upset and irked That they were allowing it to take place. Within the church, there was such extreme tolerance that these sins which we'll look at were not only taking place, but they were being permitted. And no one, not a brother or sister, was going and saying, listen, what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is counter-Scripture. It's counter the truth. It is sin. It is destructive. And you must stop. So what were they doing? I mean, what was the church, some in the church in Pergamum engaged in? Look with me at verses 14 and 15. What was the church tolerating that they ought not have tolerated? Jesus writes, "Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans." You say, oh, what is all this? What is this? What is this sin? Break it down. Listen, do you remember the story of Balaam, Old Testament? You guys do, right? I mean, Balaam is a prophet. And he's a real prophet because God speaks to him to give him a message. Well, the king of Moab, Balak, he, he entices Balaam. And Balaam was a real prophet, but he was weak of character. And so, Balak enticed him and said, listen, I'll give, you, I'll give you money. I'll give you power. I'll give you women. If you come, then you what? Just curse Israel for me. Just come on over here and say a little curse. And so Balaam, fully wanting to have all these things that the king will give him, he actually goes to Moab and he tries to do it. Seven times he tries to curse Israel. And you know what happens? Seven times God gives him a different word. Seven times God makes him bless Israel. So Barak, he gets really angry. You know, Balaam leaves and Balaam's thinking, all right, plan B. What else can I do? And so he tells the king of Moab, this is what you do. Listen, I can't, I've tried, I can't curse Israel. God won't let me, but here's something you can do. Send over your most beautiful women. Send over your most beautiful prostitutes. Send them to the land of Israel, because the men there, they will buckle. And sure enough, the king of Moab sent the most beautiful prostitutes down, and the men turned and followed And you say, well, how could they? How could they do that? Their sin was no different than ours. Their justification wasn't. I mean, imagine some of these men saying, these are the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Certainly God wants me to love a beautiful woman. I've never felt like this before. That's good justification. What's a little bit of idolatry? What's a little bit of eating at an idol feast? I mean, come on. God won't mind. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to marry this beautiful woman. And so, the entire nation is seduced and got to a point where Israel was so corrupt by temple prostitution and eating at these idol feasts that they almost lost their sovereignty as a nation. And the Nicolaitans did the same thing. They mixed orthodox Christianity with temple prostitution, with pagan worship. And so, we come along and we see this and we go, well, that doesn't apply to us. Am I engaged in adultery? Am I engaged in idol worship? I've never even eaten an idol feast. I don't know that I would know what one was if I were at one. The fundamental sin was this. Listen. They were compromising to the culture. They were saying that this is Moab. This is Pergamum. This is what they do. There's... Worship of the emperor. There's temple prostitution. If you don't eat at one of these idol feasts, you can't sell your goods and services in the market. I will lose my livelihood. I'll lose my family. Certainly, you understand, God. And so they had morphed to the culture rather than transforming the culture. Instead of being the light that goes out and restores and makes new, they had become part of the darkness. They had bought into the idol worship and the temple prostitution and the adultery. They were no longer transforming. They were conforming. And Christ hated it. He hated it so much that He said, If you do not stop, I'm going to come and I will rail against those who are engaged in this activity. He says, I hate the sin And I hate, Pergamum, the fact that you will not address the sin. I hate the fact that you are tolerant of the behavior of those in the church. You know it and you say nothing. Because I hate it. You do not love your brother by allowing them to sin. He says, you do not love your brother by being tolerant of their sin. That is hateful action. And you say, you know what? We sit here and we probably think of the church at Pergamum like we do the church at Corinth. And we say, oh. Tis, tis. adultery idol worship idol feasts wicked so glad that camden is not like pergamum so glad that we're not like that but let's step back a minute and ask ourselves how much have we conformed to our culture because that is the sin that's what christ is talking about it may not be worshiping an emperor it may not be engaging in an idol feast it may not even be having sex with the temple prostitute i hope not But ask yourself this how much of the culture has made its way into this church? How much of the culture has made its way into God's church? Last week, a group of students, a large group of students, were asked seniors, and I thought of you, I thought of many of you college seniors, born again, professing believers in Christ, they were asked in this stage of your life, what's your first priority? Now, you know the good biblical answer, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they said, what's the second? Love your neighbors yourself. Got it. That's that's not what they said. Do you know what they said? The most important thing they said is finding a job and being successful in my career. Professing Christians. They were asked number two. What's number two? God's got to be in there somewhere. It was finding a significant other, and starting a family, and God. We'll we'll get God in there two or three. We'll we'll push Him up a bit. Do you hear what's happened? It's no different than Pergamum. It's no different than the idol feast. It's no different than the temple prostitutions. The culture has moved its way in. It has enthroned itself. Is it any wonder that when the employer says jump, the employee says how high? When a member of a church says, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to do this work and I'm going to do whatever my employer says. He is my master. I'll work these hours. I will sacrifice fellowship. I'll sacrifice worship. Is it any different? You say, well, it's not temple prostitution. Is it not? A little more subtle. A little more subtle. We have friends, children our age... And they have allowed their children to be raised by the culture. What do I mean? These moms. You know the phrase soccer mom? These moms are in a perpetual state of harriedness. I don't know if that's a word. They're always hurrying. Soccer, school, piano, taekwondo, go, go, go. And the kids, they're never home. Where's the quiet time? Where's just the time to sit and listen and talk and know it's a perpetual state of motion being raised by a culture in motion subtle yes but is that not idolatry is it not temple prostitution is it any different how about I have several here I'll I'll be selective dating non-believers you know the whole idea of dating evangelism I'll date them and then God will save them. Or worse yet, I'll marry them and then I'll, I'll get them together. That's usually, by the way, that's that's more of a female perspective. I'll straighten them out. It may take some time, but I'll get them where I need them to be. We sacrifice on the biblical teaching of not being equally yoked. We sacrifice and we say, let's live together first in the church. As many people in the church live together outside of marriage as the popular culture. How is that possible? in the church as many people are sexually active than those outside saying I love the person how is that possible in light of God's revealed truth I don't Christ doesn't get it how about our teaching as of late the sacrifice of community because we're too busy we're too lazy we're already individually satisfied I don't need you I don't need the church I don't need a small group I don't need to be transparent Bending the truth to get the promotion, subtly plagiarizing, or with some of my students not so subtly plagiarizing the paper to get the grade, to get the grade. Putting a priority over leisure, over slothfulness, sacrifices out the popular culture it's in, and the rationale is the same. I mean, in Pergamum it went like this: if I if I renounce Christ, I die. It's a rational survival. We're no different. If I I have real community, that means I can't know the people that I need to know. I might be cast out of the groups. My friends might ostracize me. My professors might give me bad grades. I might be fired. Survival. We have the rationale of acceptance and success. I've got to be in the right group with the right people, knowing having the right friends. We have the rationale of freedom, of absolute freedom. I mean, certainly God wants me to be happy. I enjoy having sex before I get married. Certainly God wouldn't want to take that away from me. I want to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend before I get married. Certainly He would not take that away from me. Right? And we rationalize and justify again and again and again. But here's the bottom line. Orthodoxy. Right biblical teaching lived out in right biblical lives requires sacrifice. It means a cost. There will always be a cost involved if you say, Christ my Lord, His word is truth. I will live in accordance with it. If you do that, there will be costs, heavy costs. It means some of your relationships will need to be broken. It means that some of those jobs you will not take. It means some of those papers you will not get the grade that you want to get. It means that we must cease being heretics. You hear that word you go, heretics? It sounds so brutal. But what was a heretic? A heretic, fundamentally, renouncing the name of Christ. A heretic, fundamentally, not living in accordance with the teachings of Christ. A heretic, fundamentally, was seeing people, brothers and sisters, in the church, living in sin and not holding them accountable, not loving them, but hating them in the sin. A heretic is a lie about God. Period. About who He is, about what He said, about how we're called to live. It is a lie about God. Now listen, there are a lot of things people can do to you that will get you upset. Hmm? I imagine if I went out right now and I poked holes in your tire, you would not be happy. Especially if they were expensive tires. Right? But when I lie to you, or worse yet, if I lie about you, what is it about that that just causes people to fume? There are lots of things you can do to me. I'd rather you strike me physically than lie to me. And I'd rather you strike me physically than to lie about me. You, you know why? Because we are created in the image of God. Imago Dei. Your DNA. God is truth. And therefore the lie is the opposite. The counter God. So when we're lied about or we're lied to, it just goes so deep and we hate it. But not only that, in the very beginning, the reason that we're east of Eden, the reason that we're not in His presence is because we were lied to. It all started as a lie from the father of lies. Remember the deception that Satan had on Eve and Adam? And we're here and we suffer and there's misery because of that first lie. And so when we lie or we're lied to or we're lied about, it causes this burning anger. And you say, listen... If that happens to us as fallen creatures, how much more so a holy God? How much more infuriating and outlandish and outrageous is it to Him who is holy and perfect, who is truth Himself? Christ is coming and He's saying, Listen, some of you have held to My name, but some of you are engaged in a life It is contrary to the truth that I have proclaimed. You're engaged in spiritual idolatry. You're engaged in adulterous lifestyles. He says, I'm going to come and I will fight against you. Do we have ears to hear? Pergamum, I pray, did. Does Camden have ears to hear that Christ must be on the throne? And what he says, this man who speaks out of his mouth a double-edged sword, his words are true and therefore our lives must align with the word of truth in every capacity. Do you know that? In your workplace, at home, with your friends, at church, can you say, yes, I'm striving to that end. His words govern my life. His will drives my decisions, my thoughts, my words. Can you say that? Camden? You see, you know what this is The standard is impossible. I get that. You hear this, and you go, "Come on, pastor, get real, never forsake the name of Christ ever, even at the point of death that 's what he calls you to. My whole life is to be holy living according to what he said. Everything in my relationships, in my finances, in my community, in everything to live a holy life, to be holy as He is holy. Come on. This is brutal. This is impossible. You know what? You're right. If you try it on your own. It is absolutely impossible to never forsake Christ. It is absolutely impossible to be holy as He is holy, to live according to the word of truth on your own. In fact, if we stopped right there, you end the message, you should leave here really discouraged. You should. But, if you read the full letter, Christ says to them, I am to be your only one. This is the holy life and the standard in which I give to you. Now, hear the promise and receive the power to be my people. Look. The transforming truth. First, the truth of his identity. Second, the truth of holy living. And third, the truth of the transforming power of our future hope. Listen, look with me, please. He gives him two promises that are so radical that if you get it now, it will transform you now to never forsake him and live a holy life. Power. Dunamis. Here it is. First, he offers to them the power of the hidden manna. <laughs> now, when Justin was reading that, I don't imagine anyone, manna, yeah, that's what I want, that's what I need. Did you? Not really. What do we have in after church today? Manna. You didn't. But when you heard the word manna, you probably thought Moses. You probably thought desert. Forty years. You probably thought about God sustaining the Israelites for 40 years. Food. Food. Dropping from the sky. It was called in the book of Psalms, angels food or the corn from heaven. You probably thought, how amazing that God would be so good and gracious to such a stiff necked people that he would sustain them and feed them and nourish them in the darkness, in the desert, day after day for 40 years. It was so significant that Moses said, take a pot of it and put it in the holiest of holies put it in the ark of the covenant put it in the testimony why? he said for future generations that's how significant this manna was <coughs> generations later hundreds of years later a man came along and he said something that revealed the purpose of the hidden manna and why you too would be wise to take and eat from it this is what it says in John chapter 6 Jesus Christ in talking to his disciples listen closely He said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. Listen, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever." This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you realize what Christ is doing? He's taking this teaching that had been passed down generation to generation over hundreds of years of this manna that came out of heaven, and he's saying, I am the ultimate manna. He's saying, eat my flesh, and you will be satisfied. In other words, he's saying this. Stop filling your bellies. Stop satiating your desires. Stop filling your appetites with the things of this world. He's saying stop with the spiritual junk food already. Stop with all the the desire for power and popularity. And stop with the sex. And stop with all the things that you are trying to fill yourself with. He says, take from me. Eat from me. And I will fill that, that vacuous void that is in your life and in your heart. you're trying to stuff everything into it. Whether it's relationships or job or success or retirement. He says, cease. Cease the striving. I will satisfy. And it means this. He says, those things that you think that will satisfy you once you eat of me you will be satisfied. And therefore, they won't drive you. They won't master you. The things of this world won't bind you anymore. If you're, if you're bound by being accepted, and that's what you need, and so your whole life is being accepted by your parents, and then a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a wife or children or your employer, if it's just this, he says, listen, you're already accepted in me. Be satisfied in that. Rejoice in that. That the Father of eternal lights has accepted you and received you already through me. He said instead of having that wandering eye. Instead of engaging in the lustful thoughts. Instead of always coveting and always envying and always wanting what your neighbor has. He says eat from me and you will have all that you need and infinitely more. You'll be satisfied. And that those things won't master you. They won't drive you. He said instead of compromising on your integrity to get the promotion. Instead of compromising on your integrity to plagiarize and write the paper. He says instead of forsaking your church family to maximize your leisure time or your work time. He says instead of dieting and exercising to get that perfect body. That perfect body, which you'll never get. He says, Eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then you can go to work and not be mastered by it. It means that you can enjoy community in the church for the first time. It means this it means you can exercise and eat right and it not be your idol. It means that you are set free from all the masters of the world that continue to press upon us. Because he says, My body was broken for you so that your body would be nourished for all eternity. And he's saying, My blood was spilled for you so that your thirst will be quenched both now and for all eternity. My body, my blood is the hidden manna. And so what he offers us is himself in total. All of his glory, all of his honor, all of his power. He says, here, take it freely. It is the gospel of grace. And if that happens, you know what will happen. It means that you can live as holy people. He's saying, I'm calling you to this incredibly radical standard of holy living. And now, if you feed off me, if you're ner- then you can go out there and be the people I've called and made you to be. Because the world won't hold you. I will hold you. The world won't nourish you. I will nourish you. And then you know what? Then we can be the restoring agents. Then we can be the light. We won't conform to the darkness. But that's not all he offers. He offers something else. He offers us a new name. Look at verse 17. He says in verse 17, To him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. (laughs) so this is one of those verses that the commentators are they're all over the place the white stone so I'm going to tell you we don't know exactly but there was one thing they all agreed upon this was it, listen they said this means a new identity it means a new name in him and more aptly put I'd like to change that a bit it actually means your real name the true identity that you were to have all along before sin made its way in and screwed everything up. Not your new name, your real name, before the fall, before sin. And what Christ says is this, you overcome, not only will I give you nourishment, but I'm going to give you a name, your name, your real name, which I had intended to give you and which is set aside for you before the foundations of the earth. Because in the Bible, as you know, your name, it defines you. It's not just... So today, I know we're we're a little weird about this. Today is a culture. My wife and I even did this. You know, you buy the book. It's a really thick book. And, you know, Aaron, A, right? Adam, no. And you go down and you you get to D and you're just exhausted, right? (laughs) But even parents do this my wife had a few names I don't remember which child it was she had a couple she narrowed down one of the downsides of teaching for a few years she'd say a name like oh no not that child right because a student comes to mind and their character and their nature is saying I don't want my son anything having to do with a child like that so even we get that and we both said okay not that name I won't tell you what the names are but even nicknames right I mean uh, nicknames we take, we take upon ourselves. Why? Even ones that are somewhat derogatory, they define our character, oftentimes better than the name itself. I- I'll give you a few, just a few. Old blood and guts. Do you know? Okay, history people. You know? General Patton. Hmm? What about the Sultan of Swat? Babe Ruth. All right. One of my favorites, The Lone Eagle. Do you know this one, The Lone Eagle? Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh. A few that you know, really quickly. Honest Abe? Thank you. (laughs) Tricky Dick? Richard Nixon. Nixon, my favorite. Slick Willie? Okay. You hear those and you go, "Mm -hmm -hmm mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Identity. Character. Revealed in the name. You know, many of you refer to my youngest son... Not as Joshua. You know, when, I, when I, we first named him, I thought, I want him to be Yeshua. Yeah, right. That didn't make it. So Joshua, you know, he's not. You know who he is to you? He's Joshi. And I love that because he is Joshi. He exudes Joshi. The kids in the neighborhood call him Joshi. It defines us. The name is important. And so what Christ said to the church at Pergamum and what He says to the church at Camden, the promise is radical and I want you to hear it. He's saying this. I have a name for you. It's not a name that you derive from the culture. It's not a name that you get from the world. He's saying stop Having your identity being defined by this place, by this darkness. Stop having your character be wrapped up in what people say about you and what your boss says about you. Stop. He's saying, I have a name for you. I have a name that will fit your character and your identity perfectly. Once I make you perfect. And he says this, if you overcome, I will give you that name. If you hold to my name, at all costs, even the face of death, if you hold to my name, I will give you that new name on a white stone and you are the only one that will know it and you will know it through and through. Because at that time, in that day, when I come again in glory, I'm going to wash you clean as white as snow and I'm going to give you a name and it will really reflect you as you reflect me. He who overcomes. Christ said to the church at Pergamum... He says to the church at Camden... I do expect you to live a holy life... And you have no excuse not to... I have given you the power... If you feed off me... And you're nourished off me... I am the bread of life... Then you need not be nourished by the world... You can overcome... He says, I have a name for you... If you remain in me... And you stand in me... And you take my name now... Then I will give you an identity... And I will give you a name, one that you've never heard before, but it will fit. So let me ask you this in closing. What is more real to you right now? Earthly pleasures, temporal success, and being accepted? Or the judge, the manna, and the stone with your name on it? What's more real? You can hear this. You may be convicted. You may be excited. But what's more real to you right now, Camden? Your identity in Him and the promise of His bread and a new name in Him or fitting in and getting everything out of this world? Fitting in and getting out of it everything you can. Ask yourself that, church. If you're sitting here and you're thinking... Who is Jesus? Who are you talking about? Who is this bread of life? Then listen, this morning he is calling you. Today is the day of salvation. He's saying, Repent and believe in me. Turn from the idols, turn from your masters, turn away from the inordinate desires. Whatever's driving you, set them aside. Come to me this morning, eat and be filled this morning. By God's grace. Camden Avenue will have ears to hear as Pergamum did that we will recognize Christ as Kyrios, as Lord God and we will live holy lives in recognition of that truth. Camden, today. Let's pray. These teachings, Lord, we hear and we say to ourselves, impossible And the same truth, in the same word Revealed by the same Son stead With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so this morning, by your grace and mercy, you would give us ears to hear what your Son said to the church at Pergamum and what your Son has said to us at Camden and to your church throughout the world, that we would be a people that never ever forsake your name. That we would hold it to ourselves In light of persecution, in light of hardship, and maybe even in light of death. And that we would be a people that live holy lives in light of this radical proclamation. Not Caesar, not employer, not culture, but God. That you are the King, you are the Lord, you are the Savior. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would live these holy lives. And in so doing, we would be that lampstand, that radical light that moves its way into the darkness where people see and they know that we belong to a king. Give us great wisdom to live in accordance with these truths, I pray in Christ's holy and powerful and truthful name. Amen.